0: podcast episode 8 yeah yeah who love me obsessed with the money She fell in love with the Louis and Prada I'ma see death before I see the sign And my homie gon' ride to the death like Al-Qaeda I hide in my senses and alter perception This shit right here make you call off your henchmen I heard your new shit, it's all about the bitches Stuck in my head like I'm serving life's sins. I need a reverend, I need a beverage I use my rhymes in my mind as a
1: weapon And that shit is lethal and murk all you people There's even evil inside the cathedrals Lost in my Welcome back to the Between the Lies podcast, where we deep dive into whatever wicked or warped subject we might find our way into at that given time. As always, I am your host, and I'm proud to be here and proud to be showing you guys some of the information I've been diving into in the last few weeks. So today, we're going to be talking about Charles Manson and the entire Manson family and the events that took place, obviously multiple Murders that took place. We're going to talk about the man Charles Manson and where he came from and kind of try to analyze the key factors that would shape his mind in as early as his childhood, as well as the key factors at play at the time of these horrific murders. We will also talk about the CIA Charles Manson connection that I don't think enough people know about, or at least enough people aren't talking about in my mind. And dive into some of those details as well. But first, I kind of want to paint the picture of the 1960s and what they called the Summer of Love. This will help you understand exactly why Manson was able to entrance his followers so easily. So let's define the Summer of Love. In 1967, the Summer of Love was a social phenomenon that occurred in the summer of that very year. So when as many as 100,000 people, mostly young people, were sporting hippie fashions and the dress and the behavior, they converged in San Francisco's neighborhood of Hates-Ashbury, which is a very important detail, and we'll get to that later on. But more broadly, The Summer of Love, it combined hippie music, mind-altering substances, anti-war, and the free love scene throughout the West Coast and as far away as New York and New Jersey. So Charles Manson in 1967 would capitalize off of said phenomenon happening around the West Coast, and he would begin stockpiling what would later become the infamous Manson family cult. So we kind of get a glimpse into why it was easier to assemble such a squad or a cult at the time, a lot of mind-altering substances, drugs, and rock and roll. It was really the beginning of an innovative movement that, although rough around the edges, had anti-government and anti-war aspirations. But it was demonized to an extent through the media based on the killings and as they took place, because Charles Manson was known as a hippie himself. Well, he was known in the headlines anyway, but we'll get to that as well. So you can kind of see how it would be easier for him in this time period to control people in such a manner and make them do things that maybe their conscience or their gut or their heart would tell them not to do. But I digress. Now that we understand a little bit more about the time period and what made people maybe so open to being controlled for these horrible tasks— Let's delve deep into some of the details and information from Charles Manson's childhood and really dive deep into what made the man who would become the infamous Charles Manson. So he was born in 1934 to a young teenage mother. Some say she was a prostitute. Some say she was a drug addict, but I have seen reports of both of those, and I've also heard that she wasn't, so I can't be really sure about that. But nonetheless, most of his early childhood was spent bouncing around between relatives' houses his mother's house, and some foster homes as well. And as he grew into early adulthood, much of his existence was bouncing around between jails and prisons and criminal facilities such as that. So you start to understand that he came from an extremely broken childhood, probably never dealt with that trauma that he endured, and that led to what he became in a huge way. And what I mean by that is Charles Manson's preachings to his followers before the murders, as well as after the murders when he's done candid interviews, which we'll talk about as well. You start to see this mentality, this aura about him like nobody wants me kind of mentality. And that fed directly into The Summer of Love, which was the social phenomenon about being the outcast and being anti-war and anti-government. So exactly what he went through as a child not only shaped his mind, but it it well to the time period where he was inhabiting San Francisco. And he was able to preach his message in combined with the Summer of Love message and made these people so vulnerable and so easy to control. You start to see the man behind the madness when you look at his early childhood, but I digress. Charles Manson was considered so thoroughly institutionalized by authorities that upon his 1967 release from a California prison, he actually asked the warden if he could stay. Of course, he couldn't stay at the prison, but there we get a glimpse into the dark mind of Charles Manson, somebody who's more afraid of the outside world than these criminal institutions that most of us would scoff at, and I'd be terrified to go to prison, but he was actually more comfortable being in prison than in the outside world. Of course, he couldn't stay at the prison and didn't. Instead, he migrated to Berkeley and then San Francisco. These were the same cities that would become flooded with these young people looking to embark on a new life. He was an older figure among the crowd, but he amassed a small group of followers, almost entirely women, and in 1968 headed along with several female followers to L.A. to pursue a music career, having played the guitar and learned to play the guitar in prison. Now, like I said, his tools of persuasion were these social codes of the late 1960s, where these hippies could mingle freely with the Hollywood royalty. And his ability to tell others what they wanted to hear lent well to the times and the social movement that was occurring at that given time. He would even rub shoulders with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys among various other celebrities as well. He would even be recorded by Terry Melcher, who's a key figure in this case, and we'll get into some of that in a little bit. But he was one of the most famous producers and executives in all of Hollywood at the time. But before I go too far on a tangent... I do want to outline the official narratives of the Manson slangs and dive deeper into some of the details. Now, keep in mind, this is the narrative as according to mainstream news in 1969. So, as I'm talking about this, just keep in mind that society in 1969, they believed the news to the word. I mean, literally, hook, line, and sinker, they believed everything they said. It was a much different world where we didn't have the ability to research things on the spot as we do now with the stroke of a key. It's hard to believe, but in 1969, no one had computers in their pockets, so therefore the news media was a more trusted source of information, and the narrative was as follows. So the first confirmed Manson murders that we definitely know about, and I say the first confirmed because it is widely theorized that there are many other murders that have been covered up over the years, but nonetheless was the Crow shooting. Tex Watson, who was the group's muscle, had become involved in drug dealing in June or July of 1969. He would then rob a 22 year old drug dealer named Bernard Crow. Crow allegedly responded with a threat to kill everybody at Spawn Ranch, which was the group's main hideout at that time and through history. In response, Manson shot Crow on July 1st, 1969, at his Hollywood apartment. Now, Manson's belief that he killed Crow was seemingly confirmed by a totally unrelated news report of the discovery of a dumped body of a black panther in Los Angeles. So clearly here we see the drugs must be working on Charlie by 1969, because he actually thinks he killed a Black Panther, although the person he killed is not involved with the Black Panthers at all. So again, this is the mainstream media narrative, and basically Charlie Manson was said to be somebody trying to ignite a race war, and that was what was behind these brutal slangs. Now, we'll talk about more information in a little bit, which points to maybe other reasons why this type of thing could happen, And maybe the media just ran with the narrative, but we always see the mainstream media just run with narratives. It's just in 1969, nobody was suspect of these type of things. Nonetheless, Crow was not a member of the Black Panthers at all. So somehow Manson concluded he had been and then expected a retaliation from the Panthers. He would turn Spawn Ranch into a defensive camp establishing night patrols by armed guards. Manson also brought in members of the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club to act as his security at this time. Now, I can only theorize and give my own personal opinion on this, but it seems like this event is a big turning point for Charles Manson. Of course, it's only the first murder that we know about, but it seems like at this point, at least during and after the murder, it's like Charles Manson completely snapped he was living a distorted reality where he believed he had killed a black panther and was using that to push his ideas on the group, although some people question whether Manton even believed his lies in the first place, or was he just using this so-called propaganda to convince his group and make them go in a certain direction mentally. Next up we have the Gary Hinman murder. So 34-year-old Gary Hinman was a music teacher and a graduate student at UCLA. At some point in the late 1960s, he befriended members of the Manson family, allowing some of them to even stay at his personal home. So he opened up his home to these people, and this is what they do. Nonetheless, according to infamous family member Susan Atkins, Manson believed that Hinman was extremely wealthy. He would then send the family members Bobby Buscelli, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, Mary Bruner and Susan Atkins to Hinsman's home on July 25th. 1969. This was in an effort to make him join the family and turn over the assets that Manson thought he possessed. So the three would hold Hinman hostage for two days as he continued denying having any money or knowing what they were talking about. During this time, Charles Manson would arrive with a sword and slash Hinsman's face and ear. After that, Buselli stabbed Hinman to death, allegedly on Manson's own instruction. Before leaving the residence, Buselli or one of the women used Hinsman's blood to write political piggy on the wall and draw a panther paw, which would be a black panther symbol. So clearly at this point, we see the Manson family murders especially escalating. It seems to branch off of the Crow shooting in which afterwards, like we talked about, Charles Manson somehow convinced himself on an LSD trip that he killed a Black Panther and retaliation was coming. So he then believed murdering more people and smearing the Black Panther's logos and symbols on the wall in the victim's blood would ignite a race war that he believed was inevitable and was the same thing he was preaching to his family. I do want to add that Bobby Buscelli, days later on August 6, 1969, was caught driving Hinsman's car and police found the murder weapon in the tire well. So he was actually arrested and charged for this murder and you start to wonder how is it that the police never got the information that it was the family and not just Bobby Buscelli. There are even reports of him making calls to Spawn Ranch which we know an inmate's call would be tracked and would be able to be recorded even at that time. So how is it that the police at this time could not piece together his connection to the family? It's just baffling to me but that's another story. Buselli would continue to make calls to Spawn Ranch, and it is reported but cannot be confirmed that this was the genesis of the next horrible atrocity committed by the Manson family cult. This is probably the most famous Manson murder of all time, so I'm probably telling you a story you've heard before, but I'll try to make this one a little bit brief in case you've already heard it. On the night of August 8th, 1969, Tex Watson would take multiple Charles Manson family members to Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles, California. Now, why this address is so striking to me just off of reading it, as well as some of the information I've been doing, is this. The famous producer, Terry Melcher, who we mentioned earlier, who had recorded Manson and apparently rejected him, This was his previous residence, although new people had moved in, that being Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. But why would Manson return to the house? Did he not know that Melcher had moved? Many reports suggest that Charles Manson did know Melcher moved, and this was some attempt to scare him. But if he knew where Melcher was, why not target Melcher, and why do this gruesome act at the house? But I digress. The occupants of the house at Cielo Drive that dark night were 26-year-old movie actress Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant at that time, and that is just sick to hear. That is horrible. She was the wife of film director Roman Polanski. She was with her friend and former lover, 35-year-old Jay Sebring. He was a noted celebrity hairstylist at the time. Polanski's friend, 32-year-old Wycheck Frykowski, and Frykowski's 25-year-old girlfriend, Abigail Folger, who was actually the heiress to the Folgers' coffee fortune. Roman Polanski, again, the director who was Sharon Tate's husband at that time, was away on business in a foreign country during the time of these murders. I just wanted to point that out. Tex Watson and the three other women arrived at Cielo Drive just past midnight. Watson would climb a telephone pole near the entrance gate to cut the phone line to the house. The group would back their car to the bottom of the hill that led to the lavish estate and walk back up to the house. They thought the gate might be electrified or equipped with an alarm, so they climbed a brushy embankment to the right of the gate and entered. At this time, headlights would approach them from within the property. That's when Tex Watson ordered the women to lie in the bushes. He would step out and order the approaching driver to halt. Steve and Parent had been visiting the property's caretaker, that's William Gerritsen. He lived in the guest house at the time on Cielo Drive, so Watson leveled a 22 caliber revolver at Parent who begged him not to hurt him, claiming that he wouldn't say anything to anyone. Of course, just trying to get out of this horrible situation. Watson lunged at Parent with a knife, giving him a defensive slash wound on the palm of his hand that severed several tendons and tore the boy's watch off his wrist. Then he shot him four times in the chest and abdomen, killing him in the front seat of his white 1965 AMC Ambassador coupe never seen that car sounds like a cool car I'll have to look into that Watson would then order the women to help push the car up the driveway and I know I said I'd make this part of the story short but it's such a pivotal point in the timeline I really can't so I guess I'm going back on that promise a little bit Tex Watson cut the screen of the window and then he told one of the girls to keep watch down by the initial gate she walked over to the car and waited Watson would remove the screen entering through the window and let Atkins and Krenwinkel in through the front door. Now apparently the people who would then be murdered were sleeping at this time and apparently the gunshots they didn't hear. He then whispered to Atkins and awoke Frykowski who was sleeping on the living room couch. Watson then kicked him in the head and Frykowski asked him who he was and what he was doing there. Tex Watson would reply, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. Then, on Watson's direction, Atkins found the house's three other occupants, with Krenwinkel's help, and forced them to the living room. Watson began to tie Tate and Sebring together by their necks with a nylon rope, which he had brought, then slung it over one of the living room's ceiling beams. Sebring protested the murderer's rough treatment of the pregnant Tate, so Watson shot him on the spot. Folger was taken back momentarily to her bedroom for her purse, and she gave the murderer $70, which was a lot of money at the time. But anyways, Watson would then stab Sebring several times. So Sebring objects to the fact that he's treating Sharon Tate so badly, this being Tex Watson, and instead of bargaining with him or having a heart, he shoots him, he stabs him, it's just sick. Frykowski's hands had been bound with the towel, but he managed to free himself and began struggling with Susan Atkins, who would stab his legs with a knife. He fought his way out the front door and onto the porch, but Tex Watson caught up to him, again the muscle of the group. He struck him over the head with the gun multiple times, stabbing him repeatedly and shot him twice, and this is all while the other two people are just bound and can't do anything to stop this horrible act. The other member of the family, the girl who was positioned outside, she heard horrifying sounds, obviously from the house, and would move toward the house from her position in the driveway. She would then tell Susan Atkins that somebody was coming in in an attempt to stop the murders. So obviously she's hearing the sounds of the murders and somehow thinks that that's the sounds of people trying to stop the murders. That can just kind of paint a picture of where these people were at mentally. They were on mind-altering substances, and they were influenced in such a manner that they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, they're still guilty, but at the same time, you have to understand that they were living in a distorted reality. I mean, it's just crazy to think about. Folger and Frykowski, two of the house's occupants, would try to escape, but both of them were subdued by family members. Folger was stabbed 28 times and Frykowski 51. Sharon Tate inside the house would plead for her life and beg the assailants, please let me stay alive long enough to have my baby, but they showed no mercy. I won't go into gruesome detail, but they killed Sharon Tate as well. So we see this as maybe the sickest crime you've ever heard of, and with the amount of stab wounds that are present on the scene and the gruesome acts, you would imagine this to be a crime of passion. But really, there is no passion. It's just a crazy directive coming from this crazed cult leader. According to Tex Watson, after the fact, Charles Manson had told the women to leave a sign, something witchy at the scene. So Atkins would write pig on the front door in Sharon Tate's blood. Atkins would later admit she did this to copycat the murder scene of Gary Hinman in order to get the Manson family member, Bobby Buscelli, out of jail, who was in custody for the murder. Now, if this heinous crime wasn't enough and we went into some gruesome detail, Charles Manson would go on a late-night drive with some of his followers the next night and claim to be extremely displeased with the way the murders went. For whatever reason, again, this guy's out of his mind he would direct the family to drive to 3301 Waverly Drive in Los Angeles. Now, this was located just next door to a house where the Manson family had attended a party the year before, so maybe that's where the inspiration came from. According to Atkins, Manson disappeared up the driveway and returned to say he had tied up the house's occupants. Then the rest of the family went in. Tex Watson claims in his autobiography that Manson went up alone and then returned to take him up to the house with him. Manson pointed out a sleeping man through a window, and the two entered through a back unlocked door. Watson then claims Manson roused the sleeping Leno LaBianca from his couch at gunpoint and had Watson bind his hands with a leather thong. Rosemary was brought into the living room from her bedroom, and Watson covered the couple's heads in pillowcases, which he bound in place with lamp cords. Manson would then leave, and the rest of the followers would enter the house. So we have two different descriptions of this event. Either Charles Manson went in alone and tied up the occupants, or he went in with Tex Watson. It sounds to me that he probably went in with Tex Watson, who was generally considered the muscle of the group, like I pointed out earlier. But nonetheless, he ties up the two occupants. Tex Watson would send the female members and Rosemary LaBianca to the bedroom while he started to stab Leno LaBianca, with a bayonet. Now, at this point, Tex Watson heard a struggle in the bedroom, and when he appeared in the bedroom, saw Rosemary LaBianca fighting off the women members. It was at this time Tex Watson would stab Rosemary LaBianca with the same bayonet he was using on her husband before returning to the living room to finish the job. Watson then returned to the bedroom and found Krenwinkle stabbing Rosemary LaBianca with a knife from the kitchen. They would stab her 16 times in the back and some in her buttocks. Van Hooten claimed at her trial that Rosemary LaBianca was already dead during the stabbing. Evidence showed that many of the 41 stab wounds, in fact, been inflicted post-mortem. So again, seems like it's a crime of passion, but really it's just these crazed lunatics. Edit again. It is also reported that Charles Manson would direct some of his followers to commit another murder that night on a Lebanese actor, but that the followers didn't want to go through with it and instead knocked on the wrong apartment door. But a lot of that is differing information, so I couldn't find out for sure. Now, in terms of investigating these heinous crimes that were committed, there were various connections made along the way that would connect every single Manson murder to the Manson family cult. Los Angeles Police Department had been contacted by the same department that was investigating the Gary Hinman murder, But the LAPD disregarded the connection entirely. They insisted that they knew the Tate murders were connected to a drug deal gone horribly wrong and totally disregarded any connection to the Heman murder. Now, as always, when you look into these type of crimes, especially murder mystery type crimes, and especially when you're looking at the 60s, 70s, or 80s, sometimes the 90s as well, you will see a lot of holes in these investigations. This very well may be due to lack of technology, but as we see in this very example, the Los Angeles Police Department would ignore credible and valuable leads. This would lead to the Manson family not being caught for months. It is well known that Charles Manson was a notorious criminal, and he was undoubtedly well known and on the radar of the LAPD at the time, as well as the Manson family cult, so you just have to wonder why police wouldn't look into them sooner. And that question can really take you down the rabbit hole. But nonetheless, the entire Manson family that was directly involved in these murders would be arrested months later and then convicted at trial. Charles Manson notoriously was not present at most of these crime scenes, but he was still convicted in a court of law, and some say that's based off hearsay alone. Such a high-profile case that shed such a negative light on Los Angeles and their police department, etc., could not be tolerated for too long. So although Charles Manson and his family were absolutely guilty of the crimes that were committed that night, their trial was nothing short of unjust and unfair, at least according to lots of people. Key testimonies were left out that misrepresented vital information in the case. And again, like I mentioned before, the Helter-Skelter theory— That being the theory that Charles Manson was trying to ignite a race war with these murders, that was the narrative that was being pushed at that time. Now, in looking through information in these past few weeks, as well as me reading the book Chaos, Charles Manson and the CIA and the Secret History of the 60s, that's written by Tom O'Neill. Great book, full of great information on this case and everything surrounding it. Highly suggest you get it. It becomes quite clear that Vincent Bugliosi, who was the prosecutor, the one who tried Manson and his family, certainly had a tendency to ignore vital information and have a general tunnel vision on what would become his idea of the true motive and narrative behind these horrible murders. Now, it is also confirmed by public record as well as testimonies from people over the years that in the years surrounding the Manson family murders, Bugliosi was arrested or at least investigated for possible assault as well as other crimes. Now, most people in high positions, especially in law, would have their jobs taken away, and especially a prosecutor, usually they would be disbarred, which means they cannot practice law anymore from that point on. What ended up happening instead was Vincent Bugliosi was given the most high-profile case in Los Angeles history. Now, of course, this is just a theory, but is it somehow possible that Los Angeles government and state and local authorities just wanted somebody they could control to preside over this case? As we present more facts and findings surrounding the Charles Manson family murders, a lot of things become too coincidental to be coincidence at all, at least in my personal opinion. In reading Tom O'Neill's book over the past few weeks, certain things become abundantly clear. First and foremost, the official narrative states that Charles Manson sent the family to Cielo Drive in an attempt to scare Terry Melcher, who, as you might remember, had rejected Charlie when it came to signing him to some sort of record deal. You'll also remember me mentioning Terry Melcher was the previous occupant of the house that Sharon Tate and her friends would later be murdered in. Reports from friends of Terry Melcher at the time stated he loved living at the house on Cielo Drive, but he left there in a hurry just months before the murders. Some former friends and colleagues would even suggest that Terry Melcher believed that the Manson family cult was after him. Terry Melcher himself would state that he left the residence in an attempt to escape his maid at the time or his housekeeper, who he considered to be a threat to his personal safety but others would adamantly disagree with that statement altogether. If Terry Melcher somehow knew that the Manson family was after him, why would he allow new tenants to move into that house on Cielo Drive? And why wouldn't he get the police involved? There are also even reports of Terry Melcher visiting the Manson family in the days and months after the Tate and LaBianca murders. Of course, Terry Melcher adamantly disputes this, so it's still technically up in the air but it certainly makes you think. Terry Melcher's testimony in the trial would have him say that the last time he saw Manson or the family was well before the murders, but again, documents are being unearthed recently that suggest that this was not the case. Whatever's going on, it seems clear that certain facts and narratives were knowingly left out of the Manson family trial. Again, as always, I invite you guys to do your own research as well as order Tom O'Neill's book if you can, It's an amazing read and I found myself so captivated I actually couldn't put the book down. But the next set of revelations and coincidences are truly the most striking and really make you think a lot about the so-called facts and the general narrative that was presented in this case and the manner in which it was presented. Most conspiracy theorists and historians alike will have heard of MKUltra in some way, shape, or form by now. For those of us who don't know, it's a CIA experiment in the 1950s and 60s that crossed LSD with mind control and basically pushing the limits of the human mind. What can they make people do? Can they make people remember events that didn't even happen? Of course, they said that it's over, but it's believed that MK Ultra is still used to this very day on high-ranking celebrities and politicians to keep them under control. That is so they don't speak up, speak up against the agenda or speak out of line. Of course, all of that's just a theory, but there are certainly red flags along the way that point to the fact that MKUltra, or at least some form of mind control, still exists very much, especially in Hollywood today. What if I told you that the creator of MKUltra has ties to Charles Manson, even working side-by-side with his parole officer in a Hates asbury clinic, which pretended to offer free help to the members of the hippie movement, but was actually studying them? Not to mention that all of this was government-funded, and there's plenty of proof about that. So it's not even deniable at this point. Jollyon West was the creator of MKUltra. Now there are letters that have been leaked that show that he had major interest in using LSD and other mind-altering controlled substances in an effort to learn how to control the human mind. He especially was interested in being able to wipe people's minds or even make them believe things that didn't happen, like I mentioned a bit ago. This was apparently an effort by the United States at the time to compete with none other than Russia, who they'd received intel was also working on mind control experiments, but on their own soldiers. So money was funneled through multiple mental health agencies and then given to doctors like On West, who in some way, shape, or form would conduct these MKUltra experiments. Now, if you think you've heard the name On West before and can't remember where, it might be in accordance with Jack Ruby, who was the assassin of Lee Harvey Oswald. It's important to mention, so Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald outside of a police station, effectively silencing Lee Harvey Oswald, who would proclaim to the press that he was simply a patsy for JFK's murder, all of whom that were close to Jack Ruby before the fact and after the fact of the assassination would state that he was a level-minded person who had a firm grasp on reality at all times. That would be until Dr. Jollyon West would pay Jack Ruby a visit in prison. Jollyon West would spend time in Ruby's cell and conclude that he was psychotic and detached from reality. Also, he was a danger to himself and those around him. Witnesses and people close to the situation would say that Jack Ruby was never the same after that fateful visit by Jollyon West. Now, thanks to the documents that have been coming out since the 1960s, we know for a fact that Jollyon West has direct ties to the CIA. This is no secret anymore. So you mean to tell me that somebody with direct ties to the CIA and mind control experiments visited Jack Ruby, who before that was able-minded and able to grasp what reality is, and after the visit, Jack Ruby was never the same mentally. Is that pure coincidence? This is just my personal opinion, but it sure does seem like the CIA sent Wes to Ruby Cell, knowing what the results would be. Jack Ruby would be rendered psychotic, and therefore nothing he said could ever be believed, and in the coming weeks, Jack Ruby would supposedly pass away from cancer and never be able to speak out, or defend himself in a court of law, or talk to anybody about what had occurred. And that's not to mention reports of Jack Ruby being linked to the CIA as well, The idea being he had killed Oswald because Oswald was trying to expose the setup that was the murder of John F. Kennedy, which we have later learned has deep ties to the CIA as well. So riddle me this, Batman. What are the chances that Jollyon West would be involved in both of the biggest historical events of the 1960s? What are the chances that he would be present and involved in some way, some shape, or some form in both the Lee Harvey Oswald shooting and the Charles Manson murders? So Roger Smith, who I think I mentioned earlier, was Charles Manson's parole officer. Not only was he working out of the same clinic that Dr. Jollyon West held an office at in Hates Ashbury, he would also insist with Manson that he attend his parole check-ins at this very clinic. He would dress it up in a way to help Charles Manson and his family, something that could benefit them. But many believed that something far more sinister was going on. Of course, earlier we talked about the Summer of Love movement and how at its core it was anti-government and pro-freedom. This was a movement that was growing by the day and even branching out as far as New York and New Jersey. So when a movement is growing so steadily and speaking out openly against the government and converting people not to be under the control of the government as well as the guise of the government looking out for the people, then this said group becomes a threat to the powers that be. In fact, that was the reason that this clinic in Hates-Asbury was opened in the first place. It was disguised as a way to help members of the hippie movement, but really it was government-funded and a giant study into the behaviors of this very movement. So again, I ask you, what are the mathematical chances that Jollyon West was involved in both of these historical events that shaped the entire country long after they concluded Furthermore, there is a ton of evidence that Charles Manson was under investigation by LAPD and various other departments at the time surrounding the murders. He was arrested some say up to 10 times in or around 1969 and was somehow able to be freed every single time. Jollyon West would also be on Charles Manson's visitor's log. Again, all personal opinion, but is it possible that Manson continued being freed because he was the center of a huge government mind control experiment? There are two ways of looking at these facts about the CIA and Manson connections, at least in my mind personally. Maybe Charles Manson was a part of a mind control study that went horribly wrong, or maybe he was a part of a mind control study that went horribly right. Is it somehow possible that our own government wanted to see how far they could push the human mind? This would explain the police departments being called off of Manson's trail in the various connections from the Manson family to these horrible murders. This would also explain why so many facts and vital information were left out of the trial in the various testimonies. Again, I just want to preface this and say that it is all opinion-based, but the connections to MK Ultra simply can't be denied. Of course, with most conspiracy theories as well as this one, it's up to the person gathering such information to come up with their own conclusion. But if I've learned anything in the past decade or so doing this type of research, even before I did this podcast, I've been obsessed with this type of stuff. And it's not that the CIA works for the people. Instead, they work on their own accord and actively work for their own interests and against the people. Is it a pure coincidence that JFK talked about shattering the CIA into a million pieces and shortly after was murdered in broad daylight? Is it coincidence that his brother, who had many of the same ideas and aspirations, was murdered as well? As always, I encourage you guys listening to do your own research into this topic as I have in the last few weeks and come to your own conclusions, but there is certainly enough information here to at least loosely suggest that there is much more to this entire case than meets the eye. As always, I'm proud to bring you this podcast and proud to present this information to you today. I've been deep diving into this for the last few weeks, and I'd appreciate if anybody who's enjoying the podcast, if you wouldn't mind, leave a rating or write a short review on the podcast, hopefully five stars, and let me know exactly what you're enjoying about the podcast. This will help immensely boost the algorithm and get this podcast in the hands of many other people, which is the true goal of the Between the Lies podcast. It's all about reading between the lines, reading between the lies, and a lifelong search for truth that, for me personally, will never end. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Between the Lies podcast. As always, I am your host. Until next time, signing off. I'll admit it,
0: I'm ashamed of my ways took way more than a song for me to change all my ways for real way i maneuver through the snaking and the faking like i did this shit before and watch it all fade away damn i'm afraid you eventually see the day that she tell me she never loved me and watch it all fade to gray hey this how i feel when the pills is all you can take this how i feel when you duck in divine fate yeah Might have got lost in this maze Gotta harness all this pressure that could make a man break Gotta channel all the love, somehow avoid all this hate Once I lost a couple loved ones, it was too much to take I swear, I used to dream about a house in the hills Know a thousand rappers flipping for a 360 deal, that's real I would rather pass these wounds up and heal First I bleed up on this record, tell you all how it feels, for real